Hello and welcome back to another episode of Oral Max Facts, bringing you the most evidence-based practice guidelines in oral and maxillofacial surgery. Today I'm here again with Dr. Jimmy Harper, and we are going to continue our talk on anesthetic complications. So if you haven't had a chance to check out our previous talks on airway complications, please, please, please make sure you take advantage of our episodes 3, 5, and 8 on laryngospasm, bronchospasm, and aspiration. So listeners, in our next few episodes, Dr. Harper and I will be talking about cardiac emergencies in oral maxillofacial surgery practice. Just a quick disclaimer, this is not meant to be a medical advice, and this is not a substitute for you to look at your books to confirm your dosages. Thank you, Dr. Harper, for joining us today. Thank you. So today's topic is about the management of intraoperative hypertension. The purpose of today's podcast is to not to have an in-depth discussion of hypertension and its management. Rather, the purpose today is to do a quick overview on what are the contributing factors, how do you evaluate a patient in your office, and when is it that you should be worried about a high blood pressure, and how should you go about managing it in your office if it does happen. Hypertension is probably one of the most common diseases seen in our patient population, affecting more than 30% of adult American population. So Dr. Harper, why don't we just start with a simple case? This is actually one of the onsite questions. So here we go. A 63-year-old male with past medical history of hypertension, coronary artery disease, and gout has the following vital signs in the PACU. BP was 200 over 120, pulse was 84, respiratory rate of 18, temperature 99.1, and oxygen saturation of 98%. So, what is the most appropriate medication? So the first thing I would do before I decide to give any medications all is, is to evaluate the patient. Uh, and usually I run through this differential diagnosis, the same diagnosis I would use for somebody who was tachycardic, somebody who was throwing PVCs or PACs. And first and always, uh, think airway, airway, airway. Is this a patient who's got uh, respiratory depression? Is this a patient who's got uh, uh, partial obstruction? And he's got SATs of, of 98, so that looks uh, works in our favor. The next thing uh, that I would look at is um, uh, look for causes of a sympathetic surge. And probably the most common reason why a patient's going to have hypertension postoperatively is pain, uh, but also full bladder. Is the patient chilled? Are they shivering? Look for uh, evidence of emergence delirium. Is this a patient who's disoriented? If it's a patient, then, you know, think about hospitalized patients, the patients still have an endotracheal tube in and dealing with irritation from the endotracheal tube may be uh, something that we need to treat. And then the last thing we think about uh, is rebound hypertension. Is this a patient who took his beta blocker that morning or his clonidine if he's on an alpha-2 blocker? And if all those things uh, aren't uh, causing the, pro- the hypertension, then would think about uh, medications to lower the blood pressure. This is a patient with cardiac disease. So I'd want to think about lowering his blood pressure, looking at his heart rate. He's 84, so he's not bradycardic to start with. We don't want to give him a medication with a coronary artery disease that's going to cause a rebound tachycardia. So a reasonable choice would be a lobetalol. Uh, Lobetalol is a alpha and uh, has alpha one effects as well as uh, beta one, beta two blocking effects. Uh, as long as the patient doesn't have any significant uh, uh, obstructive respiratory disease, uh, such as asthma or COPD, uh, would be a reasonable choice. Okay, 
So airway, sympathetic surge, and rebound hypertension. That is extremely methodical approach, Dr. Harper. Thank you for that. So the above case is a simple case scenario, one that we are most likely to see in our office, right? But let's switch a gear a little bit here, Dr. Harper. In your experience, which patients are most at risk of developing intraoperative hypertension? In other words, what are the perioperative risk factors for hypertension? So we, th- we think about patients with essential hypertension, and, and frequently, even if they are on medications, they're prone to sympathetic surges intraoperatively. Uh, we think about uh, diabetic patients. We think about diseases that uh, uh, contribute to the metabolic syndrome. Uh, and, and there are some, any, anything that would cause a sympathetic surge intraoperatively uh, are, are things that uh, we want to keep an eye on. And you know, most likely, depth of anesthesia, adequate local anesthesia, pain control are, are things that can precipitate a sympathetic surge. And then there's some uncommon causes, you know, malignant hyperthermia. Uh, are we using a triggering agent as somebody with inhalational anesthetic? Rare, but think about pheochromocytoma, hyperthyroidism, uh, fluid overload, uh, not likely in the office, but certainly could be a cause. Patient drug abuse, cocaine prior to, uh, to the surgery. Uh, so, so some rare causes, but things to keep in your differential diagnosis. Dr. Harper, can we briefly discuss some studies looking at the effects of hypertension? on the perioperative course? Sure. Um, there was an early study that found that uh, patients with severe untreated hypertension, and what they defined as severe was a mean systolic and diastolic pressures of 111 and 105, respectively, had exaggerated hypotensive responses on the induction of anesthesia and marked hypertensive responses to uh, noxious stimuli. So they tended to, to bounce around uh, with well-controlled hypertension. They responded uh, similar to normal tensive subjects. Other studies have found that a diastolic over 110 immediately before surgery is associated with a number of complications, including dysrhythmias, myocardial ischemia, infarction, neurological complications, and renal failure. A study, 676 patients involving general anesthesia and patients over the ages of 40 years old showed that patients with less marked hypotension, a diastolic less than 110, don't appear to have an increased risk. So that's kind of where we get that lower number as we start thinking about risk. Uh, their, res- their results suggested that elective surgery in patients with hypertension does not, de- not need to be delayed as long as the diastolic pressure was less than 110. And intraoperatively and postoperatively, that their blood pressures were carefully monitored to prevent the extremes of uh, hypertension and hypotension. On the other end of all this, uh, if we look at uh, that the hypertension is caused in organ disease, such as congestive heart failure and renal insufficiency, the probability of adverse cardiac outcomes increases uh, significantly in the perioperative period. Uh, Another study of patients undergoing carotid endarterectomy found that a systolic pressure greater than 200 was associated with an increased postoperative hypertension and neurologic defects. Also, patients with isolated systolic hypertension are at increased risk for uh, cardiovascular morbidity after uh, cardiac bypass surgery. So based on these studies, extreme uh, elevation of of blood pressure does put patients at, at risk. Okay, so the magic number that keeps showing up is 180 or 110 as a cutoff for elective surgery without any further workup or treatment, right? Yes. Uh, according to the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association risk guidelines, 
uncontrolled hypertension for uh, was deemed as a minor risk factor for, for perioperative cardiovascular mortality. Yeah, those are some really good studies that puts the number into perspective. And also, I would really like to echo the part about cardiac complications on someone with uncontrolled high blood pressure and an organ damage. I suppose the next question I'd like to ask is, at what point do you consider sending a patient for diagnostic evaluation before surgery? Because I often encounter patients who either claim to have normal blood pressure otherwise, but reach high during my visit, or have high blood pressure but have never seen a primary care physician. Well, certainly there are patients with white coat syndrome who uh, experience a sympathetic surge every time they walk into a medical or dental office. Uh, But there are also about 70 million Americans who have essential hypertension, and two-thirds of those either are undertreated or undiagnosed. And so, well, well, hypertension is listed as a minor risk factor. The problem is, is it's long-term causes some significant consequences such as coronary artery disease, stroke, renal failure uh, that, that are at increased risk in patients with poorly controlled hypertension. So, so one of the reasons why they would need to be evaluated or should be evaluated is to determine how much damage is done, end organ damage has been done in these patients because of the chronic elevation of their blood pressure. So part of this, um, depending on how urgent uh, the treatment that needs to be done. Uh, we want to look for evidence of indoor organ disease. And second of all, the reason we send them is we want to mitigate the long-term uh, consequences of hypertension. So I usually talk to patients, you know, that come in with elevated blood pressures that this is a, a silent killer. And when you start having symptoms from hypertension, it's already too late. The damage has been done. So somebody who has poorly controlled hypertension, you know, I refer them back to their doctor or if, if they've had uh, a recent evaluation and they're not being treated, I recommend that they check their blood pressure, go to Walgreens or Kroger's, the local supermarket where they have the blood pressure monitors and check them uh, two weeks apart and see where their blood pressure runs when they're outside of that, that office setting. So secondary hypertension accounts for roughly about 10% of cases, right? Yeah. The thing about having the diagnosis of secondary hypertension is many of those causes are treatable and can make those patients normotensive. And they should ideally undergo a workup of um, prior to any kind of elective surgery. And those are folks who are going to have extreme elevations in their blood pressure, or they're going to have hypertension at a, a much younger age than you'd expect to have hypertension, such as somebody under 20. So they really ought to have a, a workup prior elective. So as long as hypertension is not severe and the serum electrolytes and renal functions are normal, most patients are not at increased perioperative risk, correct? Correct. You know, an important exception uh, is a patient with pheochromocytoma. Uh, I've only seen one patient, and, and I saw her about a month ago, and she has had, had two separate pheochromocytomas removed, and she was about 20 years old. And the time we don't want to find out about pheochromocytoma is intraoperatively, uh, where the mortality can be as high as 80% in uns- uh, unsuspected cases. Yeah, that's a pretty dangerous disease to be dealing with in our office. <laughs> So patients with diastolic blood pressures at less than 110 behave very similar to normotensive patients. So in other words, blood pressures are less than 180 or 110 and do not have any evidence of target organ disease are not independent risks for perioperative cardiac complications. Yeah, correct. And that's that's part of it is we want to look and, and we do our preoperative workup is do they have evidence of any end organ damage? Is this somebody with 
significant cardiovascular disease, history of renal, any kind of renal complications, um, stroke, those sorts of things. Uh, those make us think that, uh, you know, is this patient optimized and maybe a reason to refer them back to their physician if they've got hypertension. So if someone does come with uncontrolled hypertension, we should be looking out for some microvascular and macrovascular damages such as retinopathy, nephropathy, vascular dementia, stroke, and myocardial infarctions. Correct. Yeah. For a lot of patients who have chronic hypertension, you know, the goal to reduce hypertension is sort of a long-term goal. And so these folks who are not in that critical range may be acceptable for surgery. And we don't want to reduce their blood pressure too fast uh, because their, their, their bodies have adjusted the higher blood pressure. So we increase the risk of uh, ischemic injury if we're really aggressive and lower their, their blood pressure perioperatively. So another really good point here, Dr. Harper, why is blood pressure such a big deal during intraoperative period? Can we talk about some of the complications we have to worry about in a patient with extremely high blood pressure during surgery? Sure. You know, because hypertension causes a chronic damage uh, to the kidneys, to the vasculature, to the brain, the vasculature, to the heart, the heart has to work hard to, to push against those pressures. And then we have acute spikes in the blood pressure intraoperatively because of the sympathetic surge uh, that comes with surgery. We run the risk that we may precipitate uh, acute cardiovascular events, acute renal failure, stroke, intraoperative um, hemorrhage. So uh, those are the, the big risk with, with the hypertension, significant hypertension. That's why it's important that we want to try to control that sympathetic surge and have good control of the blood pressure if we can before surgery. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. But in addition to cardiovascular complications, what are the effects on other major organs such as renal or central nervous system? Absolutely. Second leading cause of renal failure is chronic hypertension, and you add diabetes on top of that, and you get the double whammy. Uh, so many of these patients with longstanding hypertension will have pre-existing chronic renal failure, and then we uh, throw an acute event onto the, the kidneys, and we can uh, precipitate an acute failure. And additionally, the, the central nervous system, the brain has the ability normally to um, auto-regulate uh, and, and it's able to tolerate a wide range of blood pressures, usually somewhere between a mean arterial blood pressure of 50 to 150. In patients with chronic hypertension, that gets elevated and the range is reset at a higher pressure. But if we acutely shoot that up, we've got a brain that's already been dealing with uh, high pressures and, and we may exceed that ability to auto-regulate. And suddenly we're going to have increased uh, intracerebral pressure, uh, which can lead to uh, cerebral ischemic infarcts, can lead to hemorrhagic stroke. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why we want to really pay attention to blood pressure interoperatively and watch for those extreme spikes that might require some management to control that sympathetic surge. And this is especially as you get patients who get older who have significant atherosclerotic disease because of longstanding hypertension really increases the risk of uh, ischemic events, cerebral ischemic events. Definitely a silent killer, huh? Affecting major organs such as heart, brain, and kidneys. Also, one thing if I may add here is that patients with high blood pressure can develop both exaggerated hypotension and hypertension perioperatively. Yeah, uh, you know, we, we talk about labile, uh, which means likely to change, and patients are more likely to be very sensitive to the medications 
that we give them for, for anesthesia so that they're prone for their blood pressures to drop. We give them medications that dilate their blood vessels, uh, and they have been on medications to dehydrate them, diuretics, and suddenly we relax those blood vessels and they're no longer to able to keep the tank filled. So their blood pressures tend to drop out. And then that sympathetic surge that they get from pain, light anesthetic, uh, they tend to spike. So they sort of bounce around if we're not careful in controlling our depth of anesthesia, making sure that they're hydrated to um, prevent those wide swings in blood pressure. Yep, another good point. Um, Can we just take a minute here to talk about hypertensive urgency and emergency? What are the things that we should be mindful of? And what are the things that we see in our office? Sure. The um, the JNC-7 uh, reported uh, uh, or classified a systolic blood pressure of greater than 180 in a diastolic blood pressure greater than 110 as a hypertensive crisis. And this was further classified into a hypertensive emergency versus a hypertensive urgency. And a hypertensive emergency means that we have end organ damage occurring or impending and can result in um, damage to um, vascular injury to the heart, to the brain, to the kidney, to the eyes. And urgency says that we don't see any of those end organ damages, but because the blood pressure is elevated, it significantly increases the risk long-term that the patient's going to develop some type of significant damage to those injuries. So the problem is not treating these patients is that the urgency may become a, a, a true emergency and they're kind of in that transitioning period. Um, I think those are some of the things that we have to be mindful of in our office when we do see these numbers spike, you know, especially the magic number of 180 or 110. So now that we understand the risk factors and complications of hypertension, how can we manage blood pressure, especially during anesthesia in our office? Well, I think the first decision to make is should you treat it medically, uh, assuming the patient has had reasonable control preoperatively. And the biggest risk of, of treating hypertension intraoperatively is overshoot. Uh, so we create more problems by significantly dropping that blood pressure, especially if we're using long-acting medications. Because we do see this labile response with hypertension, we stimulate them, their blood pressure skyrockets, and then we, when we stop, it bottoms out. Or the same thing can happen if we, if we give them medications is that, they, that we can overshoot and their, their blood pressure can bottom out and significant hypotension can become a, a, a significant problem as significant hypertension. So I think uh, the first thing uh, in the hypertension during elective procedure is uh, that the hypertension is usually an urgency and not an emergency. With urgencies that present to the ER, the emergency room physicians sometimes may choose not to treat the patient at all, but to refer them back to their primary care and usually arrange for follow-up, usually within the the next four to five days. Uh, Scott Weingard, who's a critical care physician that I I listen to a lot, uh, has a podcast, uh, talks about medical emergencies with a side of hypertension. And so the things that we need to be looking for are those medical emergencies and not necessarily just the hypertension, but we need to look for those in-organ damage, things that need to be acutely treated. Uh, With an emergency, we're dealing with an acute exacerbation of a chronic condition. And with the urgency, it's the chronic uh, condition that's, uh, that's the problem. So as we look for signs, some of the things that we can look for in the office, we look for EKG evidence of ischemia. We look for RAL suggestive of congestive heart failure. You might look into the eyes, look for evidence of uh, papilledema. Obviously, we can't do renal function tests in the office to see where their kidneys are, but, but at least look for those things that may be suggestive of heart failure, stroke, uh, things that would require urgent treatment. 
And then, then as we're thinking about managing medications and the medications that we give patients, that normally when we give uh, medications, cause vasodilatation of the uh, vasculature, and that causes the blood pressure to drop. And that uh, spikes in blood pressure are usually due to activation of the sympathetic nervous system. And, and that's why we get those elevated blood pressures. And a lot of us like to give ketamine with glycoparolid, which also doesn't help the cause. Absolutely. Sure. And, and if we decide to use ketamine, although we usually don't use it by itself, but ketamine can certainly cause a, uh, a sympathetic uh, surge in the sense that it's an indirect uh, activation of the sympathetic uh, nervous system. And, and if I may just quickly add to that, sometimes also not being mindful of the local anesthetics that we give with epinephrine, they could also shoot up blood pressure. Absolutely, yeah. So when we're managing interoperative hi- hypertension that's complicated by their comorbidities, we have to think about their volume status, their depth of anesthesia, what agents that we've used. Some of the steps in managing interoperative um, Hypertension is first thing uh, when you don't like a reading, recheck it. So confirm that the uh, blood pressure is elevated, that your staff wasn't leaning on the blood pressure cuff, that the arm's not bent. You know, if it's high, can you treat the contributing factors? Those things we talked about in that first scenario. Do we have adequate local anesthesia? Do we have adequate depth of anesthesia? Stop what you're doing. Stop doing what might be hurting the patient, uh, and then um, maybe. Deepen the, the uh, sedation a little bit, uh, add a little bit of uh, medication to uh, reduce the anxiety. Uh, do we need to addi- add additional either local anesthesia or opioids? Uh, with a, a patient uh, who is in moderate deep sedation, patient may be light enough that they can feel because we have inadequate local anesthesia because we're not usually not able to ask them, can you feel this? Think if those things fail to bring the blood pressure down, think about uh, do we uh, add medications to lower the blood pressure with the caveat that we want to be careful that we don't overshoot. Yeah. And um, what are some of the antihypertensive agents that we could use in our office that can work quickly? So when we think about agents that we can use in the office, we, we, we like to think about things that we can give bolus and, and not have to set up a drip. Uh, when we pick an agent, first of all, what are the secondary effects of effects of that agent? Some of the agents will decrease the heart rate, and that may be beneficial, or that may be cause adverse effects. Uh, some agents we get a rebound tachycardia. Some agents will cause a bronchoconstriction. So those are all things we're first trying to select a drug that we're going to use. How will the uh, the drug that we use affect the patient's comorbid conditions? I.e., will they be able to tolerate that tachycardia, that rebound tachycardia, or Will they be able to uh, tolerate a little bit of a bronchoconstriction? The route of administration, will it require a pump? Is it only available PO, such as clonidine, uh, et cetera? And then how long does it last when we give them the medication, and can we titrate it? With that, you give me a couple scenarios to discuss, so we can start with those scenarios. Yeah, so how do we approach a patient that is hypertensive but bradycardic? And so, so the question is, do we start with the, the bradycardia or the hypertension? And if a patient's got bradycardia, we don't want to slow the heart rate down anymore, but we want to try to control the uh, hypertension. And if we, if we try to control the bradycardia first, then we can uh, make that situation worse. We've already got increased afterload with myocardial oxygen consumption, and then we've got a heart that's working hard, and then we're going to give it a drug that's going to decrease uh, chronotropy as well as inotropy, and we can certainly make the situation worse. If we give a, a patient a drug that um, speeds up the heart rate, we're going to do the same sort of thing. So uh, if a patient's got bradycardia, then we probably don't want to use a, a beta blocker. 
Hydrolazine uh, is a drug that we can certainly use in the office. It can be given as a, a bolus dose. It's an older agent. It's a direct vasodilator. Uh, it can cause significant uh, rebound tachycardia. Uh, so we, we want to think about uh, the patient with uh, coronary artery disease may be a relative contraindication, or we may need to add a, a, a second drug to slow down the uh, uh, rebound tachycardia if it occurs. Uh, it's got a fast onset of action, usually within 5 to 15 minutes, uh, but the duration of action is a little bit longer, anywhere from 2 to 10 hours. For the patient who can in- tolerate increased heart rate, uh, it may be a reasonable choice. Maybe a reasonable choice for a patient who has a history of, of asthma as it doesn't cause bronchoconstriction. And the initial dose of hydrolazine is 2.5 to 5 milligrams IV over two minutes, and then wait for 10 to 15 minutes to see what the effect is and can be given in a, you can repeat the initial dose or you can increase that dose. The maximum dose in the office should be 25 milligrams. So, so that would be uh, one option. Uh, again, considering um, the downside is that you are going to get some rebound tachycardia. If we've got a patient that, that we're concerned about that, but who's bradycardic, uh, another choice that we might think about is nitroglycerin. Uh, it's used primarily as an antianginal agent, but it does cause a um, vasodilatation, which will um, decrease the preload and increase venous capacitance. So um, so maybe beneficial as a short-term uh, solution to somebody who spiked their blood pressure while we're trying to uh, decrease symp- sympathetic surge. It can be given as an, as an IV drip, which was what would most likely be done in the office. And this dose is uh, 5 to 10 mics per minute, in, increased by uh, 5 to 10 mics every 3 to 5 minutes. So it could be done. I think most of us are probably a little reluctant to jump to a nitroglycerin drip. Uh, but if the patient's awake, uh, could certainly uh, try a sublingual nitroglycerin tablet, 0.4 milligrams, and do that every 5 minutes as per the ACLS protocol, uh, or the other way that it's been used off-label is that if you patients that you couldn't and were concerned about giving a pill, you could use sublingual nitroglycerin, giving an equivalent dose. Need to confirm if we're going to give nitroglycerin that the patient has not taken one of the phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors uh, or the patient can develop pretty severe hypotension. So important to note that on the medical history pre-op. And sometimes that severe hypotension occurs with the uh, combination of the erectile dysfunction drugs uh, along with nitroglycerin can be difficult to treat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was hypertension with bradycardia. But now let's say we have a patient who is hypertensive with tachycardia. How do we approach that patient? So patient with hypertension with tachycardia is kind of a double whammy because not only is the heart have to work harder because it's pushing against a, a high afterload, but it's also beating very fast, which is increasing uh, oxygen uh, consumption. It's decreasing the ability of uh, the heart to rest in between beats to feed itself. So um, we need to think about uh, slowing down that heart rate. So when we look at drugs to do that, we're thinking about the beta blockers. And when we consider the beta blockers, we think about the beta-1 and the beta-2 effects. Uh, If we block beta-1, that's going to decrease the heart rate. Uh, It's also going to decrease the force of contraction, which will give the the heart an opportunity to increase its own oxygenation. It's going to decrease cardiac output, uh, which will lower the blood pressure. But the second effect is is the beta-2 effects. And so is this a patient who has any kind of bronchoconstricted disease, such as asthma, such as uh, chronic COPD, which can be uh, undesirable? There are drugs that are beta-selective uh, that have primarily beta-1 effects. And Esmolol would be a good choice. And the advantage of Esmolol is that it's ultra-short-acting. So 
as we said, the risk with treating a patient's hypertension is sometimes we can get overshoot. And, and the downside is that with Esmolol is if we get into higher doses, that we can lose that beta selective effect and you may start to get some beta 2 blockade. Uh, so we do need to monitor for bronchospasm. There are several dosing uh, protocols for the uh, Esmolol. Uh, one dose uh, recommended is to give uh, 5 to 10 milligram uh, IV push every three minutes up to a maximum of 100 to 300 milligrams or a loading dose, 80 milligrams, followed by an infusion of 150 micrograms per kilograms per minute. And the advantage of, of Esmolol is that uh, it's very quick onset, usually within um, a minute or two, and the half-life is, a, is about nine minutes, so it goes away pretty quickly. So there's a, there's a, a zone of margin of safety for us. Another drug that's, that's commonly used is labetalol. Uh, labetalol is both alpha-1 blocker as well as a beta-1, beta-2 blocker. So you get the benefit of um, basal relaxation to lower the blood pressure. So you decrease the afterload. And you also decrease the inotropy and the chronotropy. Again, you have to be very cautious in patients who have bronchospastic disease because it is non-selective. Uh, metoprolol would be another choice. It's, it's a selective beta blocker. It's not usually a first-line drug, but certainly could be used and has been given uh, to treat uh, rebound tachycardia from other agents. If you're going to use this in the office, the IV dose is uh, 5 milligrams IV over two minutes. So it's, it is beta-1 selective. It may be a, a reasonable alternative. Uh, there are other antihypertensive agents that have been used in, in medical emergencies. Uh, the biggest downside of many of those is they require a pump to use as well as an arterial line, but uh, office-based uh, setting, probably not a good option. I'm always reluctant to give out uh, recommendations uh, when I'm giving a, a talk, and I think it's important that with all medications that you need to have written doses. You need to have the written uh, indications, contraindications, whether you keep them in a little three-by-five card with the drugs in your drug box or your emergency box or you have them written out someplace so that uh, you're not giving a, a drug that you're not uh, familiar with. You don't want to be trying to learn about the drug in the middle of a medical emergency. So you have to have your sort of cliff notes with each of these medications. Okay, so just to summarize, first thing you want to do is to determine if this patient is hypertensive with bradycardia or tachycardia. Then decide the appropriate drugs. The first-line drugs for bradycardia scenario would be hydralazine or nitroglycerine, while for patients with tachycardia scenario would be more like beta blockers. And obviously there are whole other lines of drugs such as calcium channel blockers or clonidine, but those are not your first line drugs. The key here is also to be vigilant about the dosage of your bottles too. Sometimes I know the manufacturers may run out of certain dosages that you're used to and they may send you a vial at a different concentration. Absolutely. Absolutely. I say there are different systems. Amos had a system, uh, I think it was developed uh, the California Association of Maxillofacial Surgeons that um, uh, has stickers that you put on your individual drug vials. And so when you picked up a vial out of your emergency card, it had the dose listed there. And say so you need these little cliff notes to, to help you in an emergency because the first thing that happens is your brain turns to mush and trying to think clearly is it becomes the challenge. So do no harm first. So Dr. Harper, let me just ask you one more question. A food for thought. Um, what do you do if hypertension persists despite giving multiple doses of medications? Sure. That's a real real case scenario that that can happen. 
and, and the first thing is, is most of the things that we're doing in the office are elective. So uh, what the first thing is find a stopping point and finish uh, and, and end the procedure uh, that, you're, that you're doing. The second thing is to make the decision, is this an urgency or is this an emergency? Does the blood pressure remain in that uh, significant elevated range? And if it does, is there evidence of indoor organ damage? Uh, you know, that's somebody who needs an ambulance ride to get to the ER further evaluated, or is this something that you make a call to the patient's primary care physician and say, I've got Mrs. Smith here, her blood pressure is remaining 200 over 110, 115. She's got no chest pain, shortness of breath. How should, how should we best manage her? Is this something I need to arrange for follow-up, or should I refer this patient to the ER uh, to be evaluated? So I think it's an elective procedure that we're starting with, then we don't have to complete it. We need to find a stopping point. If the patient's not getting better, we don't want to press on, uh, but we want to do what's in the patient's best interest. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely a decision-making point along with um, keeping patients' comorbidities and medications in mind because you don't want to dig a deeper hole for yourself in a situation where you don't have much help. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dr. Harper. Uh, but before we end this talk, can you quickly comment on holding antihypertensive medications preoperatively for office-based procedures? Sure. Uh, most of the time, we can continue patients' preoperative medications. And in fact, with beta blockers, alpha-2 blockers such as clonidine, we don't want to stop because the patients can experience a, a significant rebound hypertension. Uh, diuretics, think about uh, the, the patient's probably can hold the diuretic the morning of surgery, but also keep in mind that diuretics can uh, uh, make that patient dehydrated and we induce that patient that we may have to fill the tank ahead of time uh, and anticipate that they could be volume depleted. Uh, also think about electrolytes with uh, patients on chronic um, antihypertensive, but probably okay to hold that, high, uh, that diuretic the morning of surgery unless the patient's taking it for um, chronic liver, liver failure for uh, ascites or a patient with significant congestive heart failure, then it may be beneficial con to continue it and probably we want to con consult the patient's physicians. As far as uh, ACE inhibitors and uh, ARBs, the debate goes back and forth. Uh, every few years, somebody comes with a, a different opinion. And as I forward that, that article to you from anesthesiology uh, from 2017, there may be some benefit to, to withholding ARBs and ACE inhibitors 24 hours prior to elective surgeries. You know, if the, the biggest risk is on the induction of anesthesia, the patients may experience a significant uh, drop in blood pressure. For some of our sedation procedures, we're not pushing those big doses of propofol to blunt that sympathetic surge from intubating the patients. Then it may be reasonable to have those patients continue their medications. But um, there is some literature to suggest that um, holding the um, ARBs and the uh, ACE inhibitors 24 hours prior to uh, general anesthesia, where you're going to be inducing that patient, may be beneficial. If a patient has severe chronic hypertension that's difficult to control, there may be beneficial to have those patients continue the uh, ARBs and the ACE inhibitors. Yeah, and in any case, if you have any questions, you can always consult with patients' primary care, that decision with them. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Harper, for a very thorough yet quick and to the point review on the management of hypertension for office-based sedation. Absolutely. To our listeners out there, um, if you'd like to read more about the management of cardiac emergencies, I would highly recommend you go and read the Clinics of North America 2013 
volume 25 article on cardiovascular and aesthetic complications and treatment and oral surgery. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, speak and share some of this information and look forward to working with you again. Yeah, absolutely. So that's it for today. Next time we'll be back with another topic in cardiac emergencies during anesthesia and oral maxillofacial surgery. Until then, stay safe, keep your social distancing active, and we'll take your leave for now. Goodbye.